This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. Good evening and welcome. The Education Department is very, very happy to announce um, Maureen Konefsky, who is going to be here this evening to share with all of us um, topics of special education today and in the future. Maureen has over 30 years of experience in the special education field and currently serves as the instructional coordinator at Naperville North High School in the special ed department. She formerly worked as a supervisor at the Southwest Cook County Cooperative and is on the faculty at Illinois State University and teaches education classes here at Moraine as well. Mrs. Gail Ditchman is there in the green and she put together all of this as an education faculty member and I'm Aileen Donnersberger, uh, the chair of the social sciences. So we both welcome all of you here and we're happy to have you here and please join me in welcoming Maureen um, as she begins her presentation. Thank you. I usually don't use the mic because I usually don't need one. I have a teacher voice. Okay, um, the first thing I'd like to know is how many of you are students pertaining to education? Do you want to become teachers? So if you would raise your hand. Okay, and that's most of you. Good. And you are a teacher also. Okay. What level are you going to be interested in? So elementary, how many have we got? Okay, uh, middle school, high school. Okay, what I'm going to be doing and much of what I will talk about is at the high school level. So please feel free if you want to ask a question that would be more pertinent at the elementary level. I've had experience at all levels and we work very closely with all of the levels in 203. So, let me put this in. You'd write that down, that would be great. Yes. The question is, what would you like to know from this talk? So in other words, you take a class and you say, okay, I'm going to this class and I'm going to get this out of it or that out of it. What do you want to get out of this talk? Okay. Then on the flip side, I'd like you to write an intervention that you're aware of, some type of educational intervention. 
because we're going to spend some time on interventions tonight. And then I'll have those collected in a little while. So take your time, think about it, and we'll start, okay? I borrowed from one of my colleagues a cheery little phrase from one of her students the other day. They were talking about reading. He needed to do more reading. And his comment was, I'd rather have a root canal than read. And what you're going to find, particularly at the high school level, is that many kids have that feeling. They start in elementary school at the level of reading, and they don't quite get it, and they come up to us. And we're kind of like the end of the train, the end of the track. We have to do something so that you get what you need to reach what you want when you graduate from high school. So much of what we'll talk about tonight has to do with the student who is either on the tracks or the student who's fallen off the tracks. And those will be important things for you to understand. Okay. So when we start, we're going to look at the past. If you're talking about special education, in the past, special education students have been placed in what we call a discrepancy model. So you're a special education student, and we know that based on the psychological information, you have a certain performance level, you have a certain cognitive level, and that there's a discrepancy. In other words, your IQ says you should be able to do ABC, but your performance is not showing that. It's discrepant. So what we do then is we say, okay, this student, this kid, has a need for special ed. The discrepancy model has been around forever. We've used it to house many types of special education students. We also look then at the area of need. And most of those kids, based on the discrepancy model, would have need in reading, they might have needs in math. It might be written expression. It might even be a processing deficit, how the information goes in, what they hear, and how it comes out. Today, because we have a new idea, a new revision of idea, we no longer look at that model. So when we look at placement and support in the past, we have to look at the IEP team meeting and we have to look at what the team decides is appropriate. Now, an IEP team is going to consist of many people. It's going to consist of a facilitator. It's going to consist of the gen ed teacher, who is an extremely important part of that. It's going to exist for the parents' assistants, and they are part of the team. And nothing can be done in special education without the consent of a parent or a guardian. Okay. In the past, we talked about what we call LRE, Least Restrictive Environment. The very least restrictive on a continuum is a general education class. So if you look at a timeline and pretend that's your continuum, this end you've got 24-7, someplace else, possibly out of state, in an alternative placement, Education there, social-emotional needs met there, living needs met there. At the other end, least restrictive, because remember, that's the most restrictive. Least restrictive, then, would be a regular kid in a general education class at the level at which they're um, supposed to be. So 
If you're a fifth grader, you're in a fifth grade general education class in your local school. And most of what we have done in the past has been on that continuum. On the continuum, we look at need and we say, Johnny needs ABC, so where shall we put him? And again, all of those things depend not only on need, but on where this child is going to get the least interference or the least restriction for his ability to learn and have meaningful learning. Okay. Due to the changes in IDEA, the eligibility is now not done based on a discrepancy. It is done based on interventions. A few years ago, our Secretary of State at the federal level and Secretary of Education got together and produced what they call a general education initiative. The general education teachers wanted to do something for kids who weren't making it. What are we going to do? So they came up with this, what we call RTI. RTI means response to intervention. And based on the last revision of IDEA, which is the law that governs special ed, we cannot declare a student eligible for special education until we have exhausted the uh, interventions in a building. And so today we're going to talk a lot about what those things are. How do we get there? How do we know about interventions? How do they occur? What are they? Those are all the kinds of things that you have to look at. And we're going to look at a couple school-wide models for that particular thing. Okay. RTI is based on what we call a three-tiered pyramid. The pyramid will have Tier 1, which is 80% of your population. Tier 2, which is approximately 15% of your population. And Tier 3, which is 5%. Tier 1 would be mainly general education students. And every one of you at your high school in the past, a few years past for some of you, a lot of years past for some of us, at that level, you were given interventions. And you could use all of them but you didn't need some of the more restrictive. Tier two would be a kid or a student who was at risk or who was what we call off the tracks. They had the cognitive ability, but the performance wasn't there. But it wasn't such that they should have been put into special education. So tier two kids were kids who need some interventions to get them back on the tracks. Okay, based on that, some kids can use all interventions, but all special education kids can use many more, okay? Now, RTI is a three-step process. First of all, you identify your targets, and targets right now is a really big buzzword in education. What are your targets? What are your outcomes? What do you want to get out of this? I asked you a target question when I assessed your learning. I said, what do you want to get out of this talk tonight? What is it going to be important for you to learn? That was my target. Because when you give a talk about special education, 
I could stand up here for the next four years and talk about special ed. You'd all fall asleep after about the first hour and a half. But that's okay because my target is what do you need to know or what do you want to get out of this talk that may assist you now or in the future. The second step in the process is assessment. An assessment is one of those things that can be done formally or informally. We used to only consider formal psychological assessments as something that was needed for special education. We now know that we need a myriad of types of assessment. And so some may be formal and some may be informal. It really just depends what the student's needs are at that particular time. And the third thing, after we know where we want to go and we know how the kids come out, how they, what they need and what we want to do for them, we need a design for learning. Now remember, you are charged as an educator to have a student demonstrate mastery in a certain content area. The, the feds and the state of Illinois don't say how much mastery. They don't say what your grade has to be. They say you have to develop mastery. And everyone develops mastery at a different level. If you got an A in a class, you mastered it. If you got a B in a class, you might have mastered it. You might even have mastered it in a, at a C level. Mastery means you have acquired the knowledge for the standards. Now, I'm sure this is a bad word in your classes, but you probably already have looked at the Illinois Learning Standards. You should be able to do at your level everything in that book. Can you? Probably not. Could I? No. But you have mastered it at the level of 80% or better, so they say, okay, this person can go on and graduate. All right. Who are we talking about? What are the types of kids that we want to look at? Are we talking about the kids who come to us way below readiness levels? Is that important? Or are we talking about the kids who have fallen off the tracks? What we talk about with RTI is kids who have fallen off the tracks. They can do it. They have the cognitive ability, but the performance isn't there. The kids who come to us way below the readiness level are actually the kids who should be in special education. So we've defined what we want. Now, here's a picture of the pyramid, and it gives you two parameters, okay? This is a pyramid that's been established to tell schools that if, in fact, they can follow this pyramid and they're pretty much within the parameters, that this should help them have students achieve a certain level of success. So if you look at it, you've got two systems. We have an academic system and we have a behavioral system. And they list particular types of activities. We'll go into those more as we go into each pyramid level tier. Okay, let's look at tier one. Who gets tier one? Probably 80 and 90% of the kids. They're the universal interventions. All students can have them. All students should have them. Most of them are preventative, and most of them are proactive. Okay, so what would an intervention be? How many of you have ever been to this library? Okay, have you read the books? Have you taken books out? You've never taken books out of the library? Oh, we've got to get you to do that. Okay, 
That's a universal intervention. You have access to the knowledge in those books. Is there anybody in the building who doesn't? Everybody does. It's a universal intervention, okay? And it's an academic intervention. It's a part of your academic system. Okay, behavioral systems are non-directed interventions for behavior. So have any of you ever had a problem in the regular program? And you don't have to tell me personally, but think about it. Did you ever not finish your homework? No, not you, okay? Did you ever um, not do a project? Did you ever kind of not do a project quite 100%? Maybe had some help you weren't supposed to have, okay? Those are all behavioral concerns. And you're going to have those in every system, regardless of whether it's an AP kid, advanced placement, or it's a special ed kid. Surprisingly enough, special ed kids have been known to plagiarize just like the AP kid. So you got to know what they're doing. Okay. Tier two, that's for that at-risk group. That's for the kid who really should be able to perform, but for some reason, they're not doing it. They're not there. And so when we look at that tier two kid, we look at a kid who is probably at risk. They need high efficiency in terms of how they're going to get the task done to demonstrate mastery or knowledge. And it should be a rapid response, okay? In terms of behavior, again, these are kids who probably don't do their homework or um, they're in fifth period and they've got math seventh and they're sitting there and they're supposed to be watching a movie in social studies and they're going, oh, what was that book we read? Wait, you got notes on that? Okay. These are kids who are not quite there. Of course, none of you have ever done that, right? You've always done all your homework every time. Oh, are you boys and girls in trouble for telling me that? Okay. Tier three, most intensive interventions. These are your special education students. These are kids who need individual work. They need assessment. They need one-on-one -on -one sometimes. They need restatement and clarification and reteaching. In terms of behavior, there's all types of behavior systems. If you look at this particular slide, you see a whole bunch of things on the side. ALOP, ALOP West, ALOP Downers Grove, ALOP Homebound, Partners for Success, Special Education Outplacement, and Expulsion. Those are types of programs that our district has created to help kids who are not making it. And some of the programs, like the ALOC programs, that means Alternative Learning Opportunity Program, the ALOC program, they're housed away from the building. I don't think any of you are this way. You look pretty astute. But there are some kids who, in particular in our building, we have 3,200 kids at Naperville North. They can't deal with it. They can't be out in the hall because they're having so much fun socializing that they're not going to class. Or if they're a senior and they have open lunch, and they have open lunch fourth hour, and they have consumer ed fifth hour, and even though consumer ed must be passed by law in order for you to graduate from high school, they take a double lunch. Not a good thing. 
So we try to get some of those kids that are at risk that we know, and based on their needs, we can place them in another setting, and that's what the ALAP settings are for us. And there are some kids, and I don't know if you are one of these or not, because college is a whole different thing. You, you have a lot more parameters and a lot more opportunity to kind of create your own schedule of college. But if you think about high school, particularly if you didn't like some of the classes you were taking because you had to take them, you know, and you couldn't leave unless you took them, that you wanted to do different things. You wanted to do um, something out of the ordinary. Or you didn't like the fact that there were 537 kids in your lunch period. You just wanted to do your work and get up. Get on with life. And so sometimes the ALAP programs are used for that, too. A kid who just doesn't want to deal with those particular things. Tier 3 is also used for special education. Very intensive programming for those kids who have the most need. Okay, this is what intervention should look like. The green is universal. That's the interventions that everybody should have. 100% Tier 1. Every kid in the building gets Tier 1. In Tier 2, 20% have their interventions. And 20% should get that. So your Tier 2, if you superimpose Tier 2 on Tier 1, you'll see that they're going to get a few more. And then lastly, here's my 5% or less, those special education kids. So possibly you might need just a few of the green, few interventions. If you're an at-risk kid, you're going to need a few more. But if you are a special education student, you are going to need all and are entitled to all of the interventions. Okay, so you all know now everything you ever wanted to know about RTI. What happens when a student doesn't learn? What should happen when that student does not learn? Okay? Now, you've got the student. You've got all the, the types of things going on. Here's the first thing you need to do. You have to look at two words, academic and behavioral. Remember the tiers? Okay, I want you to look at these three questions and tell me whether they are an academic problem with an academic intervention or are they a behavioral problem with a behavioral intervention. Talk to someone next to you. I'm going to give you two or three minutes, and I want you to tell me which are behavioral and which are academic. Which are behavioral problems and which are academic problems? Okay, who got the right answer? How many think they're academic behaviors? How many think they're behavioral concerns? Okay, let's take it one by one. Lack of homework completion. How could it be an academic behavior? How could it be an academic behavior? They don't understand the work. So they're not doing it because they don't understand it. And they're afraid or they don't want to talk to the teacher or whatever, whatever. Okay. How can it be a behavior? They don't want to do it, but why? But why? 
Okay, I'm going to tell you about my friend Jimmy. Jimmy just graduated last year. Thank you, Lord. Okay. Jimmy was a special education student who had an IQ of 153, I think. Okay? But he had processing deficits and written expression concerns. And we worked with him, and believe me, working with him was quite a task. He never finished his homework freshman through senior year. We practically had to browbeat him. Now, in his case, was an academic problem? No. He actually could figure it out. In his case, it was a behavioral problem. And it was a behavioral problem because his father said to him, if you don't do your homework, you're not going out this weekend. And to get even with his father, not realizing he was hurting himself for four years, he didn't do his homework because it drove his father crazy. And he wanted to do that. Okay? And you would never, as students, do that, would you? Do something to irritate your parents or your teachers. No, you're not that kind of student. He would. He graduated. He's at college today. He's doing very well. He's using support services. And he called me a couple weeks ago, and guess what? He's doing his homework. Because you know, Mrs. K, as they call me at school, you know, if I don't do my homework, I don't understand the class. You finally got it. Okay. So his was actually a behavioral. Can it be both? Absolutely. What about poor exam grades? What do you think those are? Are they academic? Could be. How about behavioral? The night, I hate to tell you what I did the night before I took my GRE. I wasn't paying much attention. Thank goodness I passed it with no problem, but it was a behavioral thing with me. I just didn't want to take the GRE. Okay. It can be with kids, particularly at the high school level. Now, I'm going to ask you a question that is an, a question you should have gotten in your very first education class, and most people don't even remember learning it. What are the two reasons you go to school? There's only two. Can you think of them or think of one? Why do you go to school? No, we don't want to, we're not even talking about the law. Why do you go to school? No, the Greeks didn't believe that, that you, they felt you would be educated if you went to school, but they only had one reason for each. Nope. You go to school for two reasons. Number one, for academic learning, to learn stuff so you can do stuff. And the second reason you go to school is for socialization. Okay? And the Greeks believed, and remember, they were the ones who helped start our education system, that not only should you be learned, but if you couldn't communicate and talk to people, you couldn't run your, your country, your land, your whatever. So they believed that the socialization was the other parameter. Fortunately or unfortunately, many students, when they get to the high school level, realize this is the first time they can actually socialize. And so sometimes that socialization hinders them because it becomes bigger in their minds and more important than some of the academics. So you have to look very carefully at all three of these things. Poor performance overall could be academic. They don't get it. They didn't do the work. 
If you don't do math every day and practice the problems in algebra and intro to algebra and calculus and pre-calc, you're not going to get it. Okay? So is your grade of D due to a lack of intellectual or cognitive ability, or is it due to the fact that you didn't do the homework or you didn't do the work? That may be what your profile looks like. So many, many, many things in school are a duo. They're academic and behavioral. If I'm a person who has emotional issues, maybe I'm flunking every class, but because my life outside of this school building is so terrible, divorce, uh, alcoholic parents, um, drug use, I'm using drugs, I'm an alcoholic, um, my family's falling apart, they're dysfunctional. There's hundreds of reasons. That could also produce a student that you have to deal with. So here's your question. First of all, you have to decide which is it. Is it an academic problem? Is it a behavioral problem? And how are you going to find out? And that's important. Okay, so you start out with interventions. Okay, Tier 1 interventions. What are they? For the next two minutes, talk with your buddies again and write down two or three interventions that you had either at high school or, the, or at Marine. What are some interventions that you have? Thank you. 
okay, we can move to that. We have a program called White Time, where they literally go through a program, and the program helps them to understand why they need to try in high school, why they need to be motivated. I think for tier one, every kid. Every kid can go to all of these because they're all tier one. But most kids at tier one don't need them, so they don't go. So you find out that tier two kids need more of these, and those are intense, and tier three kids need them all. Well, what are the tier one kids? They need these things. I know everything you described. I mean, just the examples of those clubs or groups or wherever they were. I mean, it seems to me, those interventions, it seems to me that in the general population of students, probably every single kid could benefit from some of those samples today. That, that was our aha. That was our epiphany. We started by department, writing down the things that we did. And all of a sudden, one other department said, wow, we could have done that. That would have been really good for the kids. Oh, whoa, that looks really good. And what we found is that the interventions are actually universal. That you can use them with every kid, and every kid could benefit. But you got to remember that 80% has a choice. They may not feel they need it, or can they may not. And as long as their performance is okay, and they're doing what they need to do, and they have a meaningful learning experience with mastery, they don't get to access those. It's that tier two and tier three kids that we really have to focus on. Those are the ones who really need it. Okay, next slide. So, have you had an idea about what interventions are and how many are available? Okay, so we've got tier one interventions, then we go to tier two interventions. We try to do tier two, at least two tries, maybe more, depending. And then we go to what we call the problem-solving team. Now, the parameter, the end result, the outcome of RTI is problem-solving team. This is a group of professionals who deal with the general education students and help problem-solve. So your kid is not motivated. You've got a kid whose performance is low. You have another kid who can't get to school on time. That's when you call that problem solving team, which you said we've done. A, C, D, F, G, blah, 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 blah. You must exhaust interventions before you go to what we call a case study to make a child eligible for special education. The new law states that you have to date special education eligibility on a student's response to intervention. So you have to be able to list all the interventions. They have to be monitored. You have to be able to show that this student cannot do anything or progress without intervention, and the interventions have to be consistent. Whereas with a kid on tier one, the interventions don't have to be consistent. They're already achieved. On tier two, once you get them back on the track, they're fine. They're performing well. They're demonstrating mastery. It's the tier three kids that really need the intervention constantly and consistently, and that's why they then become eligible for special education. And you have to be careful in the way you do that. Okay, that's the new law. All right. 
one of my lovely students did it, all those happy little movements, so you'll know, have to tell them that they work well. All right, what are the hallmarks of intervention? Now, on your um, paper, on your sheet, right next to these three, make sure you write Tier 2, because these are the most important hallmarks of Tier 2. They're good for all of them, but they're particularly important for success at Tier 2. So, I get a kid. He's not performing well. You know he has a high IQ. He's not doing his homework. He's disorganized. He's got the land. He's throwing. Um, homework isn't handed in, etc., etc., etc. How long should I wait before I intervene? That's why we talk about rapid response because this kid could be a fifth or sixth or senior if I don't intervene. No matter what we call school seniors. Alright? Your intervention must result in a rapid response. You've got to get the student now so that you're not wasting his time and he'll never get to that graduation point. It's really important. Secondly, and this you're not going to like, but last 10 years of research has told us if we do not mandate students to do certain things, the success rate will not be there. So when you're talking about RTI and the hallmarks of intervention, not only does the time have to be increased and the intensity should be increased, but it's not a, a choice. You know, and part of this is, is the problem of education. We want to nurture. That has been the whole history of education. Oh, my dear. What did you want to come and see me before school today? We did something so crazy. I'm not going to see you before school. When you get to year two, it can't be a, would you like to come? It has to be a, you will see me Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 7.15 every day until this grade reaches school. What's going to happen if you give a kid a choice? They're not going to do it. They're not going to do it. They've gotten this far without doing it. Why should they make that choice to do it now? So when you get to a tier two, you actually have to look at this as a saving of this student, and it has to be rapid. It has to be increased time. So it can't just be a little time. It has to be more time. Many schools go to, at this point, a black system for some kids. So in our building particularly, now by law, in order to graduate from the state of Illinois, you must have three years of math. Okay? Can't graduate from high school. How much do you tell me what you think about? How much trouble did you have getting through real? How much trouble did you have getting through challenges? How about advancing? If you didn't get a passing grade today, you will not be able to graduate. It's driving special educators crazy because cognitively some of our kids can't do it. And so we're putting it off in sports, which we'll talk about later. But one of the things we've done for the regular ed kids in our building is we have algebra, and then we have a class called algebra support. So they take algebra fourth hour, or whatever hour they've got, and then they go to the second hour of algebra called algebra support where they can reteach, restate, help you work through problems. It's intensifying 
the time. It's giving them more time on task. And it is intensifying the intensity of what they're doing. Okay, so you've taken care of the time, you've taken care of the parameters for what you want them to do. Now, the choice. Every student in Naperville North High School who gets a D must take the following semester, the rest of the algebra, and double the course. They don't have a choice. Okay? Because we want to get them through algebra. Yes. Okay. Uh, what do you think about uh, um, We'll talk about that because that's going to be the change that has to be made in terms of pair approach. So we're talking. I think everyone heard that question. I'm sorry. The question was, what do you think about a TA teaching the algebra support? Okay, well, and my, my first reaction to you is that's training. That's training. Because we have kids, peer tutoring in our lit center, and the training is intense for these kids, and they do a beautiful job. But it's really almost unfair to say to somebody, you're a TA, now you're going to go out and teach algebra without knowing if, in fact, do they know algebra? And secondly, this is important, can they teach it? A lot of us know something, but we can't teach it. the type of person that we're teaching. And then when you add in all those other things like, do you like kids? That's usually pretty important. Secondly, can you deal with this personality? Because if you're dealing with a BB kid who is oppositional, and he's telling you what you can do with yourself, as you're trying to teach him algebra, and you can't deal with that, that's not a good mix. So there's a lot more to planning it than just saying, okay, you've got to take out the a lot of problem solving. And that's what that problem solving team should be doing. They should be looking at all of these things, all these parameters. Okay. Problem solving team is the group that identifies the needs of students referred to them <coughs> excuse me, and plans the interventions that are to be used with the particular student. The problem solving team is also responsible for the progress monitoring of the identified student. Here's the, the most important part of the intervention. Who's watching the school? Who's monitoring the progress? How is the progress being monitored? What's the criteria for that particular progress? And these are all things that the problem solving team involves themselves with so that they can actually say, yes, this kid has done these interventions and we have found, based on these interventions, he's back on track. Or, we have found, based on these interventions, he's not going to make it without consistent support of interventions for everything. And so, then you're looking at the problem-solving team saying, does this have to be consistent, continual? This kid probably is a special ed kid. And so, based on the new eligibility rule, they then call the special ed kids and they call the special ed team in to help them open a case study. Okay. Now, <clears throat> excuse me. All right. School-wide success. These are the things that the problem-solving team is going to look at before they move on to a case study. First of all, were the interventions 
true intervention and not remediation. A tier three special education student needs remediation, remember, not a tier two or a tier one. Secondly, is it systemic? Now remember I told you that we, we listed all of our um, interventions. It was hysterical. Susie threw all the here's going, well I feel my kids are something something. Most kids will choose to opt out, folks. 
They don't want to take houses for support. Yeah, I could take woods or I could take design concepts. Yes. Can I ask you, first of all, Certainly. is this entire system that you're describing and you said the uh, school that you're at, is there a similar system in the elementary school that must by some mandate be designed and operational? Because why not get these kids in first grade? Okay. And by the time they get to your place, maybe they are already safe. That's an excellent answer, Anne, and that's the question that we have asked a hundred times in school. So I'm saying this does not exist in This is beginning to exist. You've got to remember, RTI is a new thing, and when it was first rolled out, most people thought it was a special ed thing because it talked about interventions and accommodations. Interventions and accommodations aren't those special ed things. People did not recognize what the interventions were that were universal. So we're seeing more and more now. We're fortunate because we have a unit system. We have 21 buildings from kindergarten, actually early childhood through high school. And so we're all on the same page. We're all learning RTI together. We are all working on. There are there's a lot of research right now on RTI for elementary and middle school. There's none for the high school. So the high school, because it's the end gate, the last stop on the train, so to speak, we are the ones who, as educators, are creating what this is going to look like right now. And we're having consortium meetings and meetings with local districts all over the state as well in our area, but we are writing the RTS curriculum right now because it doesn't exist. That's how new it is. The elementary are pretty established now, and it's going well, and the question that we have for the elementary is, how come this kid didn't learn to read him when he was in second grade, third grade, first grade, whatever? What happened? And we're seeing that. In fact, one of the authors, I'm sorry I don't remember the name, talked about the Christmas tree school you go to Christmas tree school where they have all these posters and all these beautiful things like up in like we are the uh, best school in uh, reading for me we are the best school in uh, whatever the whatever they call them Christmas tree schools because they're like Christmas like they're all bright spots and not from our people they don't know what the other guy is doing and sometimes they're so splintered that they don't have the impact they should have, say on reading, because they're reading programs or math or whatever, because they're just not connected. And so that's what RTI is trying to do. It's trying to have a connected tissue running through the school to catch these kids as early as possible. We're finding out now that more elementary schools have problems solving teams. Junior high have problems solving teams. We have one too, but we're still working on it through. Question. Are most kids by the time they get to the high school level um, labeled as special ed? Most kids are. You've got to remember the numbers. First of all, 10% of your population is going to be some form of special education. Sorry. Some form of special education. Okay? And of that, it can be very mild or very serious. And one of the things that I do want to do is stop the labeling. So we're finding. And I'm going to say within five years, you'll see it when you're teaching, is that there are less and less kids based on the new eligibility being labeled as special education. We're talking across the board. 
we're talking across the board. Now, there are going to be some things on the spectrum, like autism and Asperger's, that will always be labeled that because they're diagnosed by age three. But we're finding that more interventions with them are making them more independent, more able to handle things. Um, two of the kids in our building that I know very well are in our resource group. They're both asking kids. Do you all know what Asperger's is? Any problem? Okay? I guess so. Alright. Anyway, two kids, Cassie, they're both gifted. We took a practice ACT test last year, and they were the two kids in the sophomore class that exceeded beyond a, a reasonable doubt, so to speak, standards on the ACT. They both, both achieved in the 30s. Okay? Did a beautiful job. But they're experts. So what are we doing? We're working on the socialization we're helping them understand the access and the advocacy. And they're doing real well. They really, really are. So, some kids are out. If you're mentally retarded, you're going to be specialized. Okay? If you're Asperger's autistic, you're going to be specialized. If you're hearing impaired, if you're visually impaired, uh, those are always going to be. But we're finding less and less of them most of the Okay? Alright, let's go back. Now, student profile. Another thing you always want to look at in this process is the student profile. We want to be careful. We have been accused, we being educators, have been accused of over-identifying ethnic groups and over-identifying a certain type of kid. Alright? So, the problem-solving team helps to identify um, problems or concerns with these kids so we're not labeling them. Okay? So, we're talking about possibly inconsistent school experience, low socioeconomic issues, serious social-emotional concerns, low academic skills, poor school performance. We as schools need to be aware of what the kid brings to us. I have a student that I worked with today who has, um, he's a freshman, and he has been in 17 schools since he was in uh, what do you think about his knowledge level? Uh, low first grade. Okay? Inconsistent school experience happens, unfortunately, to some kids. And it's not because the kid can't do it cognitively, but we don't even know what he can do cognitively yet because his, his experience has been so inconsistent. Okay? So you have to look at the student profile. That's really important. Okay. Identifying the student as one who's fallen off the tracks is important too. Because it's a gen ed initiative, you don't want to deal with the kids on the tracks. And when you look at the interventions, if they're not sufficient, then you look for a case study. Then you go to the IEP team and you do a case study. And if in that case study testing, if um, the kid meets eligibility, there's Carol. If the kid meets eligibility based on what the standards are and what the law states, then they become a special education student, but not until. Okay? Now, ND. This will tell you how old I am. I had to take Latin in high school. And ND means noto baby or no 12. Look at this. The opening of a case study evaluation is not done 
without a thorough list of the interventions used and the progress monitoring information demonstrating a lack of success. Okay? So you really have to look at that. The special education student is one who will probably benefit from all the interventions available. It's one whose unique needs have been identified within the IEP process. And that process is instituted after the case study is complete and warrants an IEP team meeting, at which time the team gets together, identifies the needs, creates goals, writes objectives and goals, assists the student in terms of post-secondary options. Okay, this is a great change in idea. The most important pages today at an IEP are the transition pages. Okay? Transition. What is the kid going to do after you graduate? All right? Now, why do you think that's important? Why is that important? Outcomes have to be measurable. Well, outcomes have to be measurable, but think about it logically. What are they going to do? What are they going to do? Where are they going to work? Are they going to support themselves? How will they support themselves? How will they get take care? How will they vote? Did your parents question any of you on that? No, you didn't need it. We were probably all tier one people. Okay? But these students particularly need to have a path. We need to create a way for them to meet their post-secondary dreams. I tell kids when I facilitate IEP meetings that I will help them achieve any dream they want if they can do it. And I truly mean that. We can do so much with special education students if we create a path, simple tools that we use. We have in the back of our board selection book a sheet of paper, the four-year plan. It lists everything that's required by the state of Illinois for graduation and then a bunch of open space. And that's what I call them is their dream path. So you want to go into engineering? We have a bazillion classes on engineering. So we plan it. Okay, what are the prereqs? What does the class look like? Is this going to help me? Oh, you're a computer jack. I love computers. Okay. Design concepts would be your first class. Maybe you're going to go into AP computers. Maybe you're going to Maybe you're going to do something else. You want to be a fireman. All right, we have a program in Page County called um, the TCD. It's the Township um, School that helps you achieve certification in things like hair growth, um, cosmetology, fire science, computers, nursing, yada, 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 yada. Okay? It's for the kids who do not function well and won't function well in a high school, excuse me, in a college setting, but want to be certificated. So there are certificate programs in those arenas. So if you want to go to fire science, I have to know what you've taken and what you want because fire science is blocked. You're gone for most of the day when you're a junior and senior. So I'm going to make sure that your program meets all of the requirements and you achieve those requirements before junior year. Because if you don't, you can't go. You won't get your dream. So those are the reasons those transition pages are so important. Where are you going with this kid? What is this kid not? And can you help him achieve? And that's what 
the new verbiage, uh, um, the new language on IEPs and that part. So, we have to look at that. In fact, State of Illinois and the Fed say the first pages you should fill out, transition pages. Okay. Each IEP must contain a plan to support the transition, transition to life after high school. To that end, at the high school level, special education staff must be cognizant of academic needs, including achieving high school graduation and create a path to the student's post-secondary choices. Now, we, when I came into the, to Naperville at North, we had the greatest vision statement that I think exists because it's so great for special ed kids. And we're going to talk about what that is. So at North, one of the ways we create a path is we teach them that vision statement. Okay? Our vision statement was crafted to include the skills necessary to be successful at the post-secondary level and beyond. The vision statement of 203. Self-directed learner, collaborative worker, conflict thinker, quality producer, and community contributor. Those are the parameters. Now, I want you to look at that carefully. The first one, self-directed learner. That's a self-advocate. If you were not self-directed and you came to Moraine and you needed help, what would you do? Probably drop your class because you wouldn't have the skills to go and find out what you needed or where you could get what you needed. You're self-directed. If you need to take class, you take that class. If you need to see an advisor, you go see the advisor. That's a skill that you learned. Special education students have trouble with that skill. They don't know how to advocate for themselves. They have a problem advocating. So what we do in special ed at North is we teach them that particular skill as a freshman. And even though they use it all four years and beyond, we make sure as a freshman you know how to advocate for yourself. And we use a system whereby if they're really unable, we help them by going with them to do the advocacy initially. And then eventually wean them off until they're advocating. In fact, what I say to freshmen, because they think I'm a little crazy anyway, but that's okay. I say, you know, by the time you're a senior, I won't have to facilitate the meeting. I can sit there and drink coffee and you can do all the talking. But actually what happens is by the time they do become seniors, our IEP meetings become a conversation. Okay, well I took this and this, and I'm thinking about this. What do you think? Well, no, maybe we want to do this. Well, you know, I could do this. Okay? And it becomes a dialogue about what the choices of the student are and what they really want. Okay. Collaborative worker. How many of you have never been in a collaborative group? You've never sat with a bunch of other students and talked through or, or did a project, science experiment. Okay, how many of you have jobs? Can you collaborate on your jobs? Do you have to work with people? Where'd you learn that skill? Maybe it's your mother's knee, maybe it's your father's knee, maybe you learned it all through elementary school and high school. In special education, we have to make sure that they know what collaboration truly is and that they learn how to collaborate because they're going to need it for college or whatever they choose post-secondary 
in the end. All right, complex thinker. They look at this one and they go, mm. okay. Are you complex thinkers? So you only think about one thing. You never go to the next level. You never problem solve. You never say, oh, okay, I'm going to take this class. But if that class doesn't fit in, then I'm going to take this class. Because then, okay, take this class now, then I can take that class next time. Okay, and then that'll fit in my schedule because then I'll give me time for work. And then I can go to work. Then it's going to work. Or no, maybe I need to babysit. Maybe I'll do that. Is that complex thinking? It's simplistic at that level, but you complex think all the time. You multitask and complex think. It's a skill that has to be taught. And for our special education kids, that's very important. And with more discussion, with more rigorous curriculum that they go to as they advance up the uh, ladder of sophomore juniors and seniors, they learn to do more and more complex thinking. I'm going to flip down the community contributor. Community contributor, what do you give back? What do you do to give back? Does your boss ever say to you, what have you done for me lately? Think about it. Do your parents ever say, what have you done? Okay. Community contributor is thank you. It's a lifelong gift. Okay? It's something that we all have to learn to do because if we don't contribute to what's going on, are we ever going to achieve? Are we ever going to be part of the success of something? Maybe not. Okay? You have to learn to contribute and give back because how much has been given to you. And that's a hard skill to learn because most kids are in the, um, my favorite stage of development. Did you ever have, did you ever go through the me, me, mine, mine? Okay, think about a second year, two-year-old. What does the two-year-old say all the time? Mine, mine, me, mine. Okay. Psychologists have dubbed that the me, me, mine, mine time period of childhood. Okay? Do you ever, I know you don't do this, but you never go to a bar, right? Okay. So, do you ever go into one of those and you see a, an adult still in the me, me, mine, mine stage? Think about that. I want to be first. I want to be, you know, in front of the line. I'm going to a concert and get out of my way. So, we've got to learn how to contribute and be part of the community. Okay, questions? Any questions? All right. So, I skipped quality producer because it's actually one of my favorites. And I tell kids all the time. What does the product that you give to your instructor, professors, teachers show? You're do, you do an assignment. What does it show? Hmm? How much you've learned? What else does it show? Difficulty in your Well, it could show a difficulty, but what else does it actually show? Think about it visually. What does it show? Could be performance levels. Would you go to what, hopefully not, but would you go to one of your props and hand in a little yellow sheet of paper all scrunched and say, here's my, uh, my paper? Mm -hmm. Would you do that? I hope not. Okay. A uh, quality product shows knowledge that you know what you're talking about. It shows how well you perform. It also shows how much you respect yourself and what you're learning. And it gives a visual picture to your instruction. 
It shows them that you care about this class and that you care what you're doing. How much money you spent, don't tell me, on those slips. Oh, I'm going to put paper in slips. I'm going to put a nice folder. It's going to be so beautiful. Okay. We all want to be admired for our products. But our products need to be quality. They need to demonstrate the learning that has occurred. And that's hard for kids to understand. And so when I tease them about being a quality producer, I'm actually saying to them, think about 10 years from now. 10 years from now, you're all employed. It's your favorite job, whatever they are. What kind of product are you going to be producing? If you're in a classroom, what's your classroom going to look like? If you're working with kids, are they going to be achieving? Those are your products, folks. Every time I have a student that achieves something, I can't believe how proud I am of them. Because that quality product says they really learned what I wanted them to learn. And that's a visual to show me that they learned it. Or to show me that they really care about their learning. And your bosses in the future, folks, your spouses, your significant others, they're always going to be looking to you for a quality product. And that's what you have learned to do. Our kids need to learn that. So this is our vision statement. And if you do all of those things, and think about it, if you do everything on that list, do you think you're going to be successful in life? Yes, you absolutely will. You will be successful at post-secondary learning because you'll be able to advocate for yourself. You can do the collaboration you need. You're going to be able to think through the problem. You're going to produce quality, and you're going to contribute to the school as a whole. And then when you go into a job, your boss is going to ask you for all those things. It's going to be you going to the boss saying, hey, boss, i got this really cool idea. Can you do blah, 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 blah. Oh, good idea. Pushes you up the ladder. Hey, boss, you know, we have this team going, and this is what we're going to do. This would not be a tier level per se. This would be something that would be a universal set of interventions. Every kid really should work towards this. Now, is every kid going to always achieve all of these? No. Cognitive ability kicks in, performance that, that kid that inconsistently goes to school or has other um, emotional problems there are going to be some concerns. But this is what you strive for. And it's great for our kids because it actually gives them something concrete to look at and to say, yes, I have been self-directed. This week I went to see my math teacher three times and I got the problems right. Self-advocate, self-directed. Okay. Go back here again. Now, um, I said that it produces and provides a unique teaching opportunity for special ed kids, targets the skills needed to succeed on their career path, and it's a way to create a path. And they are able to achieve post-secondary pursuits. All right. So now we're looking at special ed kids. They need a strong transition plan. They also need what I'm calling the Buzz words of today, reading and math. Reading and math. If you can't read, you're not going to be able to access the curriculum. 
And if you can't pass your math classes, not only will you not graduate, but you won't be able to function as well as an adult. So in special ed, those are the two programs that we are really hitting hard, particularly at Maplewood North. I wanted to identify some of the computer programs that we're using. We have a myriad of computer programs that we use at North. These are the ones we're currently using in special ed with great success. Do I sell these products? No. I don't get any money for mentioning them. I'm just giving them to you because they have worked and they have achieved success from some kids we didn't ever think would achieve success. So let's start out with Jamestown Navigator. Jamestown Navigator is a computer program for reading. It deals with um, it deals with fluency. Fluency means words per minute. And how many words per minute do you have to read as a freshman to be able to access the high school curriculum? Anybody know? You actually need 220 words per minute. They able to read 220 words per minute in order to access the curriculum. Most people are doing it, they just don't realize it's that many. Okay? If you are able to easily read your textbooks and uh, understand what you're reading, your fluency is pretty good. Many special ed kids are below 220. They come to us, um, some as low, I think the lowest we had last year in our reading seminar program, which was an intervention, which I'll tell you about. Um, I think one kid was reading at 128. In order for them to move on and even be able to access the curriculum at North, which is very rigorous, at, at a level in which they can achieve C, they have to be reading uh, about 180. And we're finding that with the Jamestown Navigator program, since it's a program that kids do three times a week on the computer, and they all love computers, we are achieving with kids uh, great growth in fluency. So more and more kids are able to access the curriculum and take the classes that they want to take. All right, a second computer program that we, or a computer thing that we use is called the MAZE, it's a test, and it tests reading comprehension. We, we use the maze for reading comprehension, and kids are able to work through this. It can also be paper pencil, and some schools just like the paper pencil. The third thing is the AIMS Web. Now, remember we talked about intervention and progress monitoring. AIMS Web is a computer system that progress monitors. It helps you to see how much growth you've made. It produces beautiful graphs. So you set a target, you set an outcome, and it shows you, as you do the particular activities that are assigned, where you've achieved on that particular line. Now, in your lifetime, folks, and it's happened to me in the last three years, but in your lifetime, if you're going into education with a four-letter word that is going to haunt you, anybody know what that word is? Data. What's your data say? Where does your data put you? What does this data show? It's going to be driving crazy, okay? It's a great tool, but it's sometimes frustrating because data is something that you have to be very consistent about. Ames Web gives us data to show to parents, schools, staff, to show achievement. It's progress monitored using data. All right, math. A couple things we've done in math. We use a program called Fast Math, 
is that your new basic skill? Can you ask me to subtract you on kind of them? We use a program called YPT, Yearly Progress Pro. And Yearly Progress Pro is a whole set of direct construction, assessments, um, planning out according to the standards, what the student has missed, what standards they know, what they don't know, and it's more for the instructional level kids. The kids who is not the resource kid functioning in the regular classes with support, but it's someone who actually needs more intensive support. So both Fast Math and YPP, the Early Progress Pro, are programs for that kid who is just may not cognitively have the ability in math. We've got to try to support them as best we can. The third program, Alex, is something that we just acquired at North, and it's going to be used completely for all kids in the instructional activity in the introduction to algebra class next year. It's a computer-based program. Kids absolutely love it. It's fun. It's a practice and drill for kids. It shows their progress. It shows where they're going. And as you love the computer generation, no, we put it into the computer and they think they're in heaven. So it's really been great. We've shown, just in the two semesters that we've used it this year, we've shown progress with YPP and with Alex. And Alex is really fun, but it's more suited towards the general education kids in Tier 2 and a few of the kids in Tier 3 to, who really have the ability cognitively but haven't quite achieved the skills. When you're talking special ed and who are really low in math, you're usually talking YPP and you're talking um, stacking. Okay? Now, how does this path work? Okay, we're trying to get them on track with reading and math. What's the big thing that happens in junior year? Come on, what do you think? ACT. What's the ACT? What is it, that? In science, what you say. And what is it for? Why? Okay, actually all the ACT is, and don't ever tell my children, all the ACT is is a predictor. It's a test that predicts whether or not you will be able to access and be successful in a college curriculum. And so it's kind of like the door to college. If your ACT score isn't real good, that door is going to close. They're not going to want you to come to their school because it's telling them that you can't do it. So now you're a special ed kid, what about ACT? Well, not only do we have that looming over our heads, but we have the state telling us under No Child Left Behind that we have to have what? AYP. Adequate Yearly Progress. Okay, so what's happened is the state sets, okay, the state sets percentages for AYP under No Child Left Behind. In the first year, you had to achieve, and I don't remember the numbers, I think you had to achieve 37% of your special ed kids. Had to meet standards. The next year was like 42%. Last year was 50 some percent. And this year, it's almost 60%. Now, that's really difficult for special education students. So one of the interventions that we use in North is an APT. PSAE prep session. 
So every Tuesday, they must attend an intensive session in how to take the ACT, how to read the questions on the ACT, and how to study the ACT. Now, when you were probably a sophomore, you probably got uh, a bazillion and a half letters from different companies willing for $350 or $542 to train you in taking the ACT, correct? Remember those letters? Did you probably grew up? I don't know. Anyway, our kids do take some of those courses, but they, they need consistent support. So we run a special program at North for special ed students for ACT, correct? We run a brown bag program for the entire building as an intervention that our kids also attend. But some of our kids even attend an outside program. So they may have three different instances of interventions for ACT because it's very important. Naperville is a town like Taylor, like Robertson and Township Taylor, in which parents want their kids to go to college. They believe that's the path for a better job and a better life. And we have been really fortunate in that our special education resource kids, those are the higher elite kids, we have about a 70% um, 70% of our resource kids do get into college. And we're talking COD, we're talking Loyola, we're talking Paul. Um, this year we've got a kid going to Cove. Um, we have a kid going to um, Colgate. We have a kid going to NIU, SIU. We have one going to ISU. I mean, we're talking to the colleges that you'd like to go to also, okay? It's harder for a special ed kid because of the cognitive level, but we do run this program so that they can produce the best possible score for ACT. And we give them all of the tools that they need to do this. It's another type of intervention used at Naperville Ward for Tier 3 kids. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I've got. I just want to run through this next one real quick, and then we'll ask for questions. Okay. We've talked a lot about interventions. We've talked about the tiers. We've talked about special ed in terms of some of the things that they need. There are a couple other concerns that will. There are many concerns. But there are a couple other things that will occur that you need to be aware of in terms of special ed. You always need to be aware of behavior. And so even though we have EBD programs, there are sometimes behaviors that occur that you have to determine the reason why or you have to help support the student. And that can be anything from parents who are abusing kids it could be drug use, substance abuse of some type. It could be um, just oppositional um, in terms of the student. So that, that's something that's going to happen when you have a special ed kid. An outgrowth of some of those behavior concerns or when something happens is what we call the manifest determination. Now, you hear that in school yet? Have they yet in special ed classes? Okay. When a student who is special education is involved in a behavior issue that is an expellable offense, we are required by law to hold what we call a manifest determination. At a manifest meeting, we must determine whether or not the actions that occurred 
was a direct result of the handicapping condition or was it just a result of the student? In the event that it's part of the handicapping condition, we are required by law, even though this child is expelled, to, to produce or give or have an alternative placement. Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu library.